All right, check this out. This is what I'd call a successful day of podcasting. Today, you'll hear a debate as to whether you should tip at places like Moe's and Subway. You'll hear a story of a waiter getting stiff, that waiter being me. You'll hear how Kathy, longtime seacoaster and assistant to Pastor Greg and Josh, may be one of the greatest humans ever. Why Lynn labels me a thief, the evolution of women taking on more leadership at Seacoast, and how Lynn was reprimanded for teaching on Sunday morning, all because she was the wrong gender. And guess what? There's more. We also talk evidence as to how we know that Jesus wasn't born in a stable. Pharisees weren't enemies of Jesus. And David, you know, the little shepherd boy version that stuck it to Goliath. Well, check it out. He wasn't the underdog when he did it. Goliath was. <laughs> so first I sit down with two wonderful ladies at Seacoast, my friends Lynn and Kathy, and then it's Mark Turnage. So many of you Seacoasters have heard about these Israel trips that pastors Greg and Josh have taken many on. I got to go last year. They've all been led by Mark Turnage through his organization, Biblical Expeditions. This guy, wow. He knows his stuff and is going to share fun facts about the Bible that you'll be surprised about. I'm pretty sure many minds will be blown. Just because I don't believe or agree doesn't mean I can't learn from you. Why did you have to bring that up? (laughs) Okay, that one I'm super embarrassed about. (laughs) Do you like me? Do I like you? Yeah. As as an individual or as a podcast? Yeah, as a person. No, I like you. Okay, cool. Cool. And I don't have any interest in appearing to be stronger than I am. I ain't bowed to Nebuchadnezzar's statue. He gonna leave. You feel me? How do we love people who see the world differently than we do? What would it look like if we truly loved all of our neighbors? Could listening to their stories be the first step? This is Seacoast Church, and there's way more to talk about. Hey, so I, I had to continue the beef jerky discussion. So she came through. She she found out about my love for beef jerky, and she had some just sitting around her house that she wasn't <laughs> going to eat. So she brings the bag, and I had a really, like, sometimes I get bad, bad headaches. And so there's just something in me where I'm like, if I just eat food, something, maybe that will, and I was drinking water. I was eating all the beef jerky. There was probably like four or five pieces, but here's where I felt bad is I opened one of them up and it was a a real nice dried fruit sort of deal. And I was thinking, I mean, Lynn doesn't like jerky, but she didn't say anything about dried fruit. And there was one more left and I just ate it. Listen, listen, I didn't say anything to you, but I was like, bonus. I had those dried fruits and I didn't like them either. And I was like, if Joey likes jerky, he's going to like this. (laughs) So those were your bonus There you go. I was thinking, I'm such a horrible friend. I don't even ask Lynn. I'm just going to open the other one and eat that one too. Okay, but you, you just said that you had a headache, so you were just eating all the food. Is jerky like real food? Yeah, it's real food. It's it's a meat raisin. <laughs> it's a meat, meat raisin. raisin. Yeah. <laughs> That's exactly what it is. Kathy, good to have you on here. Nice to be here, Joey. Awesome. Lynn, tell us about your house-sitting situation. So I, there are several friends that I will house-slash-dog sit for, um, and it's the varying situations. Um, I have one friend that they essentially live in paradise. And so when I, and their dog is the sweetest, most calmest dog in the world. And so um, when I house-sit for them, it really is like, 
me being on vacation. In fact, it was funny. I did it in the past month. I was there for a couple weeks and it was a Friday and I was like working out on the back deck and the guy comes to clean the pool. And so I like said, Hey, good morning. And he's like, Hey, he's like, are you on vacation or are you house sitting? And I was like, um, house sitting that is vacation. <laughs> so Kathy, it, it sounds as if you agree with me because we were talking about this before push and record. My thing is, I know it's just unacceptable and I'd even and put in the category of maybe bad manners not to pay someone. But when a college kid comes to house it, why isn't it payment enough? You're you're in a nice house. You get to have it all to yourself and be by yourself. Isn't that payment enough? Well, that is a great payment. But if I'm going to ask them to do it for me, then I'm going to expect yeah. up front that I'm going to pay them. Immoral or bad manners not to pay? <laughs> bad manners. <laughs> My grandfather used to, he would actually say that he thinks it's a sin not to tip. So I worked at Applebee's for a couple of years in college. And oh my gosh, when this would happen, I would really have to control myself. So we were closing up probably two minutes left in in the restaurant's open hours. And a couple comes in and we have to serve them. I mean, they come in before closing, we have to serve them. Like they had me, I mean, it was very exceptional, the the sorts of things that are running me around. I mean, every time I came to the table, it was, can you give me a different sauce? Can you? And, you know, I'm trying to close up my stuff so I can go home and everything. And they have got me going crazy. And I was like, well, at least I'll get something out of it. They do not leave mm. anything. I did the biggest no-no. And I think I told my manager, but I went out to the parking lot and I said, hey. And they both turn around. Immediately, she looks at her husband. How was the service? And he was like, it's good. It's like, okay. And I just walked back then. I was furious, just absolutely furious. But here's my question for you two. Moe's. Nope. <laughs> Why no. do they have a place on the receipt yep. to tip? I usually do a little. You do. Just do. because it's there. No, I do it because they're working in an industry where they don't make much money. And I feel like they're Lynn doing and I a are feeling service. Smaller and smaller. And I'm not. So I want to give them something and because I want to be generous. Yeah. So I'm always going to give them something. I don't leave them like large amounts of money, but I do give them a little. All right. So my follow-up question, I'm sure Lynn's got some artillery here too, but my follow-up question is, do you do that at a fast food Chick-fil-A? Do you say, hey, here's an extra five? Because I think the exact same thing is happening. So, Moe's, you just see them do it. But at Chick-fil-A, you've got someone who's putting a sandwich together, putting all the stuff on, putting your toppings and everything. They're doing the exact same thing they are at Moe's, except Moe's are doing it in front of you, right? Right. And Chick-fil-A does it better. <laughs> Chick-fil-A does it better. I yeah. agree. I, but that generosity is a good word. And that would check me because I probably don't, and I say probably, don't always have a generous heart when I'm in a situation like that. But I would say I worked in the service industry for a long time as a server. So I've worked at Applebee's. I've oh, worked at I'm Ruby a huge Tuesday. Tipper. I've huge worked. Tipper. And like... Up until even 15 or 20 years ago, waitresses are still making less than minimum wage. So at a fast food restaurant, they're making minimum wage. Like I was making two thir- ever, two thirteen an hour. Most waitresses don't make minimum wage. The restaurants pay them less. And so, and whether, and you have to report at least 10% mm-hmm. whether you made that or not in tips. So I would say that I tend to be, and this is because of my experience, I tend to be way more generous 
with waitresses and waiters than I am in a fast food setting. Yeah. Especially if I like go up to the counter and I just like you didn't bring it to me. Now it's different if I'm like at a place where I'm going to go sit down and they're going to bring it to me. But that also is partly probably because I'm not as generous as I should be. (laughs) Yeah. Well, well, I mean, my, my question is for me, the rule of thumb is if I don't know what I'm tipping them for, there's probably not a good reason to tip. i I bought their product. I didn't benefit from their service. Like I'm a great tipper when I sit into a restaurant, but I feel like I said, hey, here's what I want. They said, here it is. And I said, here's the money for it. They didn't serve me. They didn't serve me any more than what Chick-fil-A. In fact, Chick-fil-A will actually come to your table, at least the ones that I'm at, and take your trash voluntarily with no tips expected. Are we changing your mind at all? Or you're like, you guys are selfish you're not changing my mind. Are we selfish? <laughs> um, I don't know that you're selfish. I just think I'm more generous than you. Yeah. So for you, it's a it's it's not necessarily a here's why. It's just want to be generous. I want to be generous. I want to bless them. Yeah. If there was not a place for a tip, would you give them cash? If I had some, I might. Dang, Kathy's like she female is. Jesus. <laughs> female <laughs> Jesus. <laughs> like, is she the greatest human being? <laughs> Like, I just give them money because I'm generous. I mean, I'm a generous person too, but I don't. No, you're not, Joey. <laughs> yes, I am. Well, you just realized we are not generous people. <laughs> I'm just the one who admits it. All right, so just so you know, everybody, before episodes come out, our lead pastor and my boss, Josh Walters, will listen to these episodes. So I may get fired for this. I'm not proud of it, but I also got so frustrated. So there was a very similar restaurant to Moe's that I frequented. And my thing is I'm very low carb. So what I would order is I would say double meat, no rice, no beans. So the person that initiates that packaging, you know, getting the plate out, putting double meat on is their responsibility to put a little label that says extra meat or something like that. This same place, probably three or four times in a row, by the time I got to the cash register, I would have to say, and there's extra meat. Don't forget that. Finally, I just stopped doing it. I was like, it is not my job to tell you how much money I owe you. I ordered, and now it's your job to tell me what I owe you. I was just I was sick of it. I was just like, you gotta, you guys have to do your job. I'm not going to tell you extra meat every single time. That's really bad, right, Kathy? No, it's not really bad. Okay, Lynn? <laughs> <laughs> Lynn's respect level just went down for me. <laughs> But seriously, I just got to a point. I was like, why am I having to tell them what I purchased? Well, and part of me even wonders if like the person plating it doesn't care. And they're like, oh, we'll just give them the meat without charging them. And I'm taking away their blessing by reminding the person at the cash register. I'm robbing from them. It's going to be. When I do that. Well, you're robbing either way. (laughs) (laughs) You're robbing them either way. Well, I would would rather rob the store than rob them of their blessing because I think from an eternal perspective, okay. <laughs> Kathy, you've been here since... 2001. 2001. You have seen this place change like crazy. I sure have. So I, I started attending here in 2002. So my, my earliest memories of Seacoast is typically sitting in the balcony of, what do y'all, the, the student center now, I right. guess it is. And we would come pretty much every Sunday. We'd come to some first Wednesdays. Is it a neat thing for you to just see what has happened at Seacoast the past 21 years? It has really been so fun to have a seat on the bus to watch him 
do things. It's, I mean, especially like when we went multi-site, everybody was doom and gloom for a couple of days. You know, it was like, oh, we can't build. Yeah. Because God had another plan that was going to be far greater than us enlarging the sanctuary where we were. So that was really exciting. And they were like, we're going to try this. We're going to do something new. So we did something new and it yeah. worked. Kathy told me the other day that Pastor Greg has told her, you cannot write a book about your experiences <laughs> because you know too much. <laughs> no books, no documentaries. No books, no documentaries. <laughs> hey, no I, pictures. <laughs> I, I, I do want to ask a, a serious question, but when you hear the horror stories at Hillsong, and I, we, I won't go down a list, but just I, I remember asking Pastor Greg, when Bill Hybels had his downfall, I said, Pastor Greg, are you as surprised about Bill Hybels as I would be if this was you? In a heartbeat, he said yes. So my question for you is, are you confident that we don't have these sort of toxic things that are bringing churches down? And and if so, why are you confident? Because I, I, I know what I believe makes this place different, but behind the scenes, why do you think Seacoast is maybe less likely to have that kind of stuff? I am confident. Um, I'm confident in our leadership. We have checks and balances from the top all the way down that we're not going to be put in a situation where that's going to happen while we're here. I think one one of the biggest deals is there's clearly no motivation for a celebrity type status over here. It's just None. not. It's, it's just not a, a motivating factor. You know, Chip and I have talked about how if Pastor Greg was willing to be a little more controversial with his podcast or, or you know, talk about things that are a little, and that's not his concern. He doesn't, he doesn't want to be controversial. And if that were to get him higher numbers, who cares? He doesn't want to do it. You know, I mean, you could totally work the system and, and get more listeners. Yeah, but no, that's not his motivation. So that's not going to happen. Have you seen this place change any as far as women's involvement in ministry? Totally. Um, when I arrived in 2001, we had one female that was leading a department. And it was a large department, but she was not offered a seat at the table. She was offered to lead the department. And, and that wasn't because she was a woman. It was... That's just the way it was. Gotcha. And as the years rolled on, that began to change. And when Chip came on board, he became very vocal about getting women at the table. And even with campus pastors and their wives, he became very vocal of having um, meetings together, having retreats together, all the things that Mm, have led it to where it is now. I think it's noteworthy that, at least from my perspective, there was no fight on it. Like it's no. almost like Chip brought to everybody's attention. Everybody's like, "Oh yeah, you're right. Let's right. do it." No, like, there was it there wasn't was no like fight. a tug of war. No, there was no fight for it. You've taught it like some of the prayer stuff, like he had cleansing streamed and and uh, you know some of those old school ministries. Was that something that would have happened since day one when you got here, or was that part of a progression too? No, that was happening um, already when I got here. But women pastors, did we have any official? Pastor? We did not have a woman pastor at that time. How have you felt, Lynn, as you know, you're administratively gifted, but you also have a ministry mindset and you are, that's that's a part of who you are is, is ministry. Have you felt like you've had any restraints on 
God's calling on your life being here at Seacoast? I don't. That's the crazy thing. Not internally, not from staff, not from leadership. I mean, even when I moved, like I was the children's director at the Irmo campus and then moved here seven and a half to eight years ago to be an assistant to Josh Walters. And so even at that point, stepping into an administrative assistant role, I didn't even have vision for more than that. And so even the things that I've done over the years have been things that I've been invited to do by leadership or things that they've seen in me and called out. None of it is something I raised my hand to do. So from a staff and development and leadership perspective, I feel like those things were called out of me and called up from our staff, from our leadership. So from my from that perspective, no, I mean, I'm always like, I can't believe that I get to... <laughs> Like, I can't believe that they would ask me to do that. Or I can't believe that I get to like sit in this room and like give input on someone else's message, you know? So I think in those ways, it's been really pretty amazing to be like, oh, this hasn't been something that I've pursued and beat down the door to do. This has really been something that somebody's like tapped me on the shoulder and said, hey, I see this in you. You want to try this? So. Yeah. And, and you have taught on a Sunday morning, right? Yes. And it's gone to all the campuses or was it one of those optional yes. deals? I think one of them was an optional deal, but I've also had campus pastors reach out to me and say, hey, can you come preach live at my right. my campus? So. so Kathy, being here for so long, was that kind of like a, wow, there's not necessarily Lynn being the first, but when women started to actually teach a whole sermon, was that like, whoa, that's this is a big deal or? Not really. There were sermons prior to Lynn that I think Jeff and Sherry taught together. Mm-hmm. And then I think there was one in the early years where Sherry actually did have the platform um, by herself. So I really didn't think anything about it. Do you think we'll ever have a female campus pastor? Like I think we will. Pastor of a church? I think we will. Yeah. I'm hesitant to admit this, but when I showed up at Seacoast to come on staff in 05, I would have been in the category of, I would love it if women could have more leadership, but I have to go with with the Bible. And so if you would have asked me, do I think that women could or should be pastors, I'd say, I, I don't think so. Now, my views have changed a lot to where I totally would love to have women pastors, campus pastors. So a good friend of mine, his mom passed away very unexpectedly, super tragic. She was a younger woman. And the church that she was attending happened to be pastored by a woman. And I'm telling you, I don't know if I've ever been to a funeral that was that powerful and effective. I mean, she mothered and pastored the heck out of people that were in there. And I I was just like mesmerized. I I was thinking, I don't think there is anybody who could have done what she did. And obviously God working through her, but that was the first time that I experienced, wow, like what she brought to the table was very unique. And I don't know if it was, you know, I'm sure that was uniqueness to how God has made her specifically, but it felt like there was some part of uniqueness of a, of a woman doing it. I, I was just mm-hmm. blown away. Have you ever gotten any criticism or pushback from, you know, Seacoast is a big tent, so you know there's fundamentalists around here that would say you shouldn't have been up there. <laughs> <laughs> What's funny is I'll ask... I'll, I'll ask Lynn questions like this, and I seriously assume there's no way. Like, like I asked her when she talked on stage uh, on rec- racial reconciliation, I was like, you didn't get any flack for that, right? I mean, I, yeah, you, you're loved and cherished around here. She was like, yeah, you want to see my uh, Instagram direct messages? And I was like, you have got to be kidding me. 
So I'm going to be surprised again. Have you gotten any sort so, of? I didn't get name the any, people. Name the people who name, wrote you. I'm not going to name them. They didn't send it to me directly. They sent their ad- admonishment to the general campus inbox. But what they don't realize is at the time I was the Mount Pleasant campus admin. So the, <laughs> so min- so the general campus inbox comes to me. And a lot of them were from women. So that was like, that was hard. Um, but I, that, you know, I was having to filter the fact that like, and the reason that comes to me is because some sometimes we get things that we need to filter out that what's constructive, what needs to go to the pastor, what needs to go in the special filing cabinet. So one of them in particular, the person couldn't have known that it was coming to me, but her admonishment was to our pastors for allowing it. And then she had something that she wanted them to tell me. And (laughs) so, you know, I just put it in the special filing cabinet. What was it? Moved on. What did she want you to know? Um, no yeah. comment? Well, yeah, just that, that I was like um, in disobedience to God and all of the things that she felt, which, and at that point, that wasn't the first, I think that was the second time that I had taught on a weekend. And so it's like, that, the way I feel is like you, you have, like, that's your opinion. Um, and if you can't live with that in this house, then. Not the place for you. Yeah. Cause it's like, you see what's going on. Like I wasn't the first woman to ever teach on a weekend. Women like you guys who are gifted to do ministry stuff, do you have patience for those sort of sentiments where maybe not the delivery that that you received, but do you have patience and or grace for the sentiments of, I, I just am trying to stay true to God's word. And yeah. in their mind, they're seeing it as an obedience thing. Like for both of y'all are like, that makes sense. Yeah. I mean, I, the reality is before the first time Pastor Josh asked me if I would, and I remember the first time I spoke on a weekend was December 20. It was the last Sunday in 2019. <laughs> and that year or two before that, I was really struggling with it because I was speaking in like women's ministry settings and other settings. I think I'd done some first Wednesdays at some campuses. And I was really wondering like, is this, because I grew up in a church that did not have that view. And so I was struggling with the scripture myself and like wrestling in it. And I think the year before that, when we were still in the old building, there was a Sunday when um, Pastor Darren was preaching and I was hosting and that I'd never met him before. So that was one of the, I think that was the early days of him coming on Mm -hmm. staff as a teaching pastor. And I came off stage at the close and he walked up to me and he said, is that something you want to do? He's like, I think that there's an anointing on your life for speaking. And I was like, you know, it it just kind of caught me off guard and I didn't really know him. And at that point I was like, I'm okay with hosting. I'm okay with women's ministry. I'm okay with these things, but I wasn't sure if that lined up with God's word. And so that was a, I was wrestling through that for a couple of years and had someone, a, a woman pastor who like, spoke some things into me that I had settled what I believed right before that invitation from Pastor Josh. And so I have a lot of compassion Mm -hmm. for people who believe that because that's something I had to wrestle through myself. So Same for you, Kathy? The same. Yeah. Yeah. I grew up in a denomination, and um, they still don't have a woman pastor. I don't think they ever will. Yeah. And I'm okay with that. I will let them wrestle that out and 
I feel kind of sorry for them. I think they're missing a lot because there's some very talented, anointed women in churches that are not using the gifts that God gave them. They just have to be children's ministry leaders. They can teach the children. Right. Just not the childish men. (laughs) Children in their formative years. Like we know. But that's the most, I think that's the thing that I kind of like, it strikes me that in some places, if that is the belief, I'm okay with that being your belief. But our youth, it's the formative years. We all know that for our generation. And so why is it okay to have spiritual authority and teach in a young man's formative years, but it's not just a few years later? So Yeah, well, it's interesting. I don't know if she still does this, but even the most known women leaders out there like Christine Kane, when she comes here, she makes sure everybody knows that her husband is here. And it's kind of like a theological sign-off. Like, I'm not here. Oh my! Have you noticed that? Oh, like, yes. So, I mean, I would imagine this is still a pretty prevalent belief. And Pastor Greg has expressed interest in coming on here and sharing his perspective and why he would be open to a, a woman even being a campus pastor. So, we'll have to, we'll have to make that work. But I'm glad, I'm glad I didn't have to invite your husband been in here with you <laughs> so that you could speak happy. <laughs> I am too. <laughs> All right, Mark Turnage. This has been a long time in the making. We've talked about doing this for a long time and we're finally getting to do it. Have you been the guy to take all of the Seacoast people on Israel trips? Because Pastor Greg's been telling the church about these Israel trips now for, I don't know, 10 years. Have you been the guy each and every time? Yeah, I have been. I, I actually had the the privilege. In fact, the first time I met Pastor Greg was on a trip that we did for the lead team of the Ark. That's where Pastor Greg and I hit it off. Nice. I've only been to one trip, and it was in November, and I'm pretty sure you told us that Seacoast is kind of your favorite, but you got to you tell everybody that, right, Mark? No, I actually don't. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to give you an opportunity because obviously people at Seacoast, we don't want to brag on ourselves, and you have a unique perspective in which you're not necessarily a part of the community, especially here locally, but you have spent so much time with so many different people from Seacoast. What seems special to you about our family? Because I know personally what I think, but I want to hear what you have to say. I would say in general, uh, you always get your few outliers, but in all the Seacoast trips, the people within the church embody the values of the church and the way that they live and do community one with another on the bus and going through the sites where Seacoast really jumped out to me was being able to really engage with a church community that those that are on the trip are serious about their Bible study and know a lot about the Bible. Like you can tell that they're people that are in the Bible often. And why that's fun for me, instead of me having to retell, reread, let's say like a story like David and Goliath that is so well known, I'm able to do deeper dives into maybe less well-known biblical stories. And that's a lot of fun. And the people not only then kind of push you, you know, to try and bring out my best, 
But then, you know, their engagement after trips, asking questions and, and trying to implement what they've learned, that really is what just sets Seacoast apart from yeah. pretty much most of the, the other churches that I have the opportunity to guide. Yeah, I've bragged on you to so many people. And one, uh, well, the, the main thing that I say is how much I appreciated you not being a sensationalist. Like you could easily use words like this is where such and such happened. This person for sure did such and such. And you'd probably get a lot more gazes and oh my gosh, but you were very honest each time it was, hey, this could very well be a location where such and such happened. And I thought that was really awesome. You know, nobody wants to hear later on that their guide that said all this kind of stuff was exaggerating and saying this was certain when it wasn't that certain. But tell people what your background is education wise and then what you do for a living as far as the tours and the excavations. Like, why are you, I'm going to call you an expert and why why am I calling you that? (laughs) (laughs) So I was born and raised in Springfield, Missouri. I did my undergrad uh, at a college uh, here locally. While being raised in the church, and and my mom worked for a large Christian organization for a number of years, I would say my real come-to-Jesus moment was the summer before my senior year of high school. And that's what led me to go and study at a Christian university. But I'd always wanted to be a neurosurgeon from the time I was in third grade. Ah. Once I got to this Christian school, I was so excited about my Bible classes. I Hated my science classes, loved my Bible class. Yeah. And so I, d- I switched my major. And just to give the kind of short version of this, as I was studying, I, I didn't know that I, I didn't feel like a calling to be a pastor or something. I didn't really know what you do with a, with a Bible degree. But I went on my first trip, uh, just a regular kind of pilgrimage tour with my parents the summer between my sophomore and junior year. Right. Of college to Israel, then came back and I met a professor who had lived in Israel for about a year and a half, had studied there. I I was studying biblical Hebrew with him, and he began to show me how issues of land and language and culture make the Bible not kind of a choose your own adventure book, (laughs) but actually. Those were pretty rad books, but yeah, I don't think Listen, I loved them. I was all about the choose your own adventure. (laughs) Me too. And I I was the kind of personality that what I would do is I would be the one that would intentionally, I knew where they were trying to drive me. And I would pick the alternative route just to see, you know. (laughs) Hey, I hated reading so much that sometimes I would just skip from one choice to the next. (laughs) any context. <laughs> but, uh, what, but what that did is it gave me my intellectual faith. Yeah. And so when I needed to look at graduate schools, the only place I wanted to go was to study, study and live in Israel. So I lived in Israel for seven years, did my master's, did all my doctoral courses. I'm actually in the process of finishing my PhD right now. I may be one of the few people, if I get this done, Joey, I may be one of the few people that is actually going to write his dissertation in three months, but we'll see. Wow. Dr. But, Mark, do I have to call you doctor well, <laughs> next time I'm in Israel? <laughs> no, not at all. Uh, I don't like the sound of that. Um, anyway, lived in Israel for seven years, began leading study tours to the lands of the Bible. So Egypt, Jordan, Israel, Turkey, yeah. Greece, Italy, and have parlayed that into a business, Biblical Expeditions, of which I am the, the founder and the CEO. Our entire goal is 
to use the world of the Bible to help people understand and encounter the words of the Bible. So you mentioned the fact that, you know, not trying to sensationalize things on a tour. And that's that's why, because for us, the, the travel experience is not just to get you there and say, okay, now you can see the Sea of Galilee, and now you've been in Jerusalem, and to create that kind of sensationalism. But I tell people all the time, what matters to me is that by walking where Jesus walked, you will walk differently when you go home. And the only way that that can happen is if people begin to see that the Bible belongs to its world, not ours. And so to interpret and understand the Bible, we need to first start by stepping into its world. And so that's really what we've built, uniquely built biblical expeditions around. And out of that, we've spun out and do online courses and things like this. And then you mentioned the archaeological excavations. So when I was a student in Israel for uh, an archaeology course, I wrote a seminar paper about the question of the city we read about in the New Testament known as Bethsaida. Uh, At least three of Jesus's disciples, Peter, Andrew, and Philip, came from Bethsaida. And in the vicinity of Bethsaida, Luke tells us is where the feeding of the 5,000 takes place. Yeah, And so there's been a debate going back into the the 19th century as between two sites. While I was a student, one site had been excavated for about 30 years. They they stopped excavating it just a few years ago, but it didn't fit. I mean, this site is a mile and a half from the shoreline. And I don't know about you, but I don't know too many fishermen that are going to drag their boats a mile and a half to, right. to, to, to find the water. <laughs> and... Um, so the alternative site had never Shoot, really we been. Got, a- we got places now that are storing and cleaning your own <laughs> boats for you. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly. And so um, there was an alternative site, had never really been seriously excavated. When I got into a position a few years ago where I could get things lined up, I connected with uh, a gentleman by the name of Professor Mordechai Aviam, who is one of the leading experts in the archaeology of the Galilee in the Hellenistic and Roman period, so New Testament time frame. And we got the funding together. We did a shovel testing survey. We uh, started our first season of excavation. Now, the academic director of the dig is another professor and colleague of mine, uh, Steve Notley. And Steve and and Moti kind of head up the, the excavations. And long story short is we have found definitely Byzantine Bethsaida. We found a church that was dedicated to the Prince of the Apostles, meaning Peter, um, which is a church that we hear about in Byzantine sources. So that's Christian Roman Empire time, 4th, 5th, 6th century, 7th century. We also have a Jewish fishing village from the 1st century. We haven't found the the welcome to Bethsaida site yet, but uh, I'll actually be going back to Israel in a couple of weeks to participate in our yep. next season of excavation. So, Yeah, just so people understand the the magnitude of this. I remember we were at Herod's, one of his palaces. And I mean, this thing is just huge and stretches over a lot of land. And I asked you, I was like, Mark, throughout history, how have people treated this place? Is it celebrated? Do people have people been visit? And you're like, Joey, we just found it 10 years ago. Or it was like a very, I was, I was, blown away. I was thinking, I didn't know it was buried. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, this thing's too big to be buried. I mean, it's just crazy. Hey, before we move on to other stuff, you got to tell people, I'm going to call it the legend of Tara Banks. What did she find? <laughs> I well, yeah, I do, need to, I, I do need to speak for Tara because Josh has kind of commandeered 
some of the the story here. <laughs> Tara found it and identified yeah. it. So this was back in 2017, the Seacoast trip that we had in November of that year. We were at the site of El Araj, which is the, the site we're excavating a bait site up. And at that point, we had only really opened one main area and earth movers had pushed earth up in a, in a bank around the area of where the excavation holes were. And so the, the holes were fenced off. So we were standing as a group around the holes. Tara was kind of kicking around some dirt and so forth. And, and Josh was next to her. And essentially what they found, and actually there had been a, another tour group who had been there earlier who had kind of uncovered a, a large part of, of this. But what they found was a basalt stone lioness that probably stands about, about three feet tall, um, probably about three and a half feet long, a foot, foot and a half wide, uh, weighs over a ton. So after I'm done kind of explaining the site, that's when Josh steps in and goes, Mark, what's this? And uh, <laughs> I actually called Moti Aviamar, our chief excavator, who teaches at a college there on the Sea of Galilee. He came up immediately and sees this thing. And he thought it was small. I kept telling him, I'm like, no, this is big. So they had to get a crane. And they hoisted this thing out, put it in the back of a truck. It's the lioness that, as I understand, if you would have to, you would know this better than me, Joey, that the lion symbol of the seacoast worship is connected to this somehow. Yeah. And so that's, yeah, yeah. that was all Terra. Yeah. How, how old is it thought to be? Well, it, typically you only find them in Jewish synagogues from around like the fourth, fifth centuries um, AD, maybe a little bit later. Yeah. Normally we find them in pairs. And so we're still looking for, you know, this one's brother or sister, but it was not in context, like an archaeological context, because it had just been part of this earth that had been pushed up yeah. uh, to clear clear the the ground space. Yep. All right. So I asked you, I said, Mark, can you send me some things that would fall into the category of things that you may have been thinking, believing in the Bible that aren't true? And so we're going to, we're going to do that, but I'm going to have a little fun, put you on the spot here. And I will just say people, he's not going on the record. He's making, we're having fun and he's making guesses, but given what you've studied, Mark, and what you've seen and what you've excavated, what is the percent likelihood that Jesus was a historical figure, just a person that existed. A hundred percent. All right. What's the percent of the general narratives in the gospels being pretty accurate? Very, very high. Nineties? Yeah. All right. And then outside, you and I both share the same Holy Spirit. So that is a part of this process for us. But outside of the help of the Holy Spirit, based on the data, what percent chance did Jesus actually rise from the dead? I mean, <laughs> I, I'll say it this way. We don't have the YouTube clips. Right, right. Well, let me go on record of saying, you know, obviously I, I believe in the historical reality of the resurrection. Right. I think that one of the things, though, that especially we have to recognize within our post-Enlightenment Western world today is that we have a, a standard for truth in some respects that, frankly, isn't always 
even valid by our own standards. But more importantly than that, that is definitely not the way that the ancient world looked at it. And I'll give you a quick story here to kind of illustrate what yeah. I'm talking about. I was once at an academic conference and a, and a colleague of mine was talking about, you know, the demon possessions and exorcisms in Mark's gospel. In the middle of his presentation, he says, well, no one here actually believes in demons and demon possession. Now, not everybody agreed with him on that, but he came up to me afterwards and we were talking and everything and he asked for my feedback and I said, well, here's the problem. You start from the assumption that your assumptions, your modernist assumptions are right. Mm-hmm. And whether or not you believe in demons and demon possession, Mark and his audience did. Now we can sit here and say that, well, they're po, you know, they're pre, they're a pre-enlightened society and they're explaining all of these different things. That's immaterial. When we come as our jobs as readers of scripture is to ask the question, what did the author and the original audience, as best as we're able to determine, what did they think and what did they believe? And the, the reality and the belief of the resurrection of the dead is a core theological idea within certain streams of ancient Judaism. And what we see when we look at even Luke's presentation of Paul's preaching, for example, not just in Athens, but Athens was the main one, but throughout the book of Acts, what Paul writes like in 1 Corinthians, Jesus's followers were convinced of a bodily resurrection of the dead. And so... The, so much to the point of giving up their own lives in a very correct. torturous, horrendous way. Yeah, Correct. And and I think that one of the things that we have to be careful of when we are, are stepping back into in, in the world of history is to impose our kind of modernist scientific ideas. And, and, and let's just also say this. I mean, science is always still changing. You know, is a is a light beam, uh, you know, a wave or a, a particle? Yes. You know, I mean, right. it's like yeah. so. So I think that we have to be very careful of just simply discounting something because, well, I've never seen someone raised from the dead. Yeah. And that doesn't make sense to me. Right. Well, from that standpoint, and let's just say it this way, the expectation was there yeah. within Jesus's cultural world. Yeah, for sure. Man, that's good stuff. All right. I want to get through as many of these as possible. So if we can, you've got so much information. So I tell you what, you you answer these however you want and just know my intention is to get through them all. And and if you run out of time, say, time's up. <laughs> but but Jesus, Jesus was not born in a barn. And I, I'll tell you, the first time I encountered this question was actually watching the Nativity movie. I think it mm-hmm. was made a few years after The Passion of Christ. And it seems like from what I learned from you, that movie depicted it accurately. Yeah, I, I think the the thing that we have to all understand is that when we come to many of our Bible stories, we are far more influenced by our traditions and by our artwork, whether that art is being painted or whether it's a video representation, than we are by actually carefully reading the scripture. And when we come to the, the the depiction of Jesus being born in a barn, we need to understand that that depiction of Jesus's birth was never part of Christian artwork until the Middle Ages. What you have is you have medieval and Renaissance painters who are not familiar with the the, the physical world of Jesus. And so they're portraying the story is they understood it within their world. So, I mean, you know, just take Da Vinci, for example. You know, his biblical scenes 
are the landscapes around, you know, like Florence and Venice and Milan and so forth. So I think one of the things that we have to first start off is just to acknowledge that even historically, Christian artwork has not depicted Jesus that way. The earliest depictions are of him being born in a cave. And we even have a second century non-canonical gospel called the Proto-Evangelium of James that mentions Jesus being born in a cave. The other thing, though, that I would say is when we look at Luke 2, where we have the story of Luke's birth narrative, it really doesn't look anything like when we begin to read it carefully and then begin to place it within kind of the contextual world of Jewish marital custom and, and things like that. There are some things that we normally put into the story that aren't there. I mean, and one of them is the barn. Yeah. The other is, and I and I say this often to people when I'm I'm talking about this subject, you know, if anyone can find for me an innkeeper, I'll give them a thousand dollars if the innkeeper is there in Luke too, right? And but yet every one of our our Christmas pageants, we've got the little innkeeper, you know, usually dressed up in his dad's oversized robe. And the inn with no room. <laughs> and, and yeah, and, the, and the, he has one, 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 one line, right? No room, right? right? You know, and, but that's not in the biblical text. You have blown some minds just now, I'm pretty sure. <laughs> when we come to reading the Bible, the first thing we always need to do, first of all, I would say we need to slow down. Sometimes we try and read too much. And what happens then is we start chunking in ideas and pieces of information without really paying attention to the text itself. Yeah. And there's no barn. All right. Most sacrifices had nothing to do with sin. And I'm assuming you're talking a lot about the Old Testament here. Correct. Of the sin sacrifices that are listed uh, within the Mosaic law, only 17% pertain to sin. Most sacrifices were about feasting and celebratory uh, and so forth. And what's interesting within not only I would say the Old Testament worldview, but also within the New Testament worldview, the sacrifices for sin were only for sins that I unintentionally committed against God, right? I mean, just going through life, you're going to do something that you didn't intentionally mean to do against God. And that's why you bring the sin sacrifice. On the other hand, well, if I intentionally sin against God, what am I supposed to do? Well, I mean, that's where you get like Psalm 51, you do not delight in the, the the sacrifices of bulls and goats, but in a broken and a contrite heart. This is where yeah. we get this idea of repentance and brokenness before the Lord. But here's the other side of this. If I sin against you, I don't, A, get to make a sacrifice to fix it, and B, I don't even get to repent before the Lord. I've got to go make things right to you and even making restitution up to four times. In the gospel story with Jesus and Zacchaeus, where Zacchaeus says, I give Half of what I what I make, I'm giving half of it to the poor. And if I defraud anybody, I pay them up to four times. He's doing exactly this very thing. And of course, Jesus's response is that today salvation has come to this house in response to that. Yeah. All right. So this one has forced me to really be careful how I say things because I have so many times said, these people are more like Pharisees, like Pharisees this, Pharisees that, the bad guys, you know, the ones that crucified Jesus, hated Jesus, was always talking smack to Jesus. And you're telling me the Pharisees were not the enemies of Jesus. Correct. Man, and and Jesus was a Pharisee, could have been fallen to that category, right? If we were going to place Jesus kind of on the theological spectrum— of ancient Judaism. Yeah. Yes, he fits in the world of the Pharisees. Oh, man. Yeah. All right, so what the heck is a Pharisee then? And who are the ones that were the jerks? Well, look, I mean, 
I think there's a couple of things going on here. One, first of all, let's let's go back to our whole thing of reading the text carefully. When it comes time to hand Jesus over to Pilate, in all four of the Gospels, the Pharisees are never mentioned. It always mentions the chief priests, their scribes, and the Sadducean leadership of the people. And the Sadducees and the Pharisees are not the same groups. Okay, That does not mean that Jesus doesn't have conflicts with the Pharisees. But that's where culturally— we're often at a distance from the world of the Bible because we think conflict equals antagonism and hatred. But even when we read in Matthew 23, Jesus's woes against the Pharisees, right? He lists five negative traits of the the Pharisees, but he starts out by saying the Pharisees sit on the seat of Moses, therefore do everything that they tell you to do. So he endorses their authority. He endorses their theology. He just says their practice doesn't equal what they say. And that's not a Jewish problem. That's not a Pharisaic problem. That's a human problem, right? right? And so what we find is when we look at the world of ancient Judaism, that even among those who we would call Pharisees, there were conflicts, sometimes even violent conflicts, far more so than what we ever see in the Gospels. But there were conflicts. Judaism is a culture of conflict. When we see Jesus and the Pharisees in these debates— It's not that they're trying to kill him. It's not that they're trying to trip him up, but more it's coming from this vibrant world of debate that is going on and argument. Doesn't mean that they're all going to agree with each other, but just because they don't agree doesn't mean that they want to see him dead. Yeah. Where we see this even playing out more is in the book of Acts. After the crucifixion and resurrection and Jesus's ascent, Luke in Acts mentions the Pharisees four times. Twice, they're coming to the defense of Jesus's movement against the Sadducees. Twice, they actually are belonging to Jesus's movement. So them being Pharisees had not kicked them out of being Jesus's followers. Wow. And also, them being believers hadn't kicked them out of being Pharisees. In fact, Paul in Acts the end of Acts, he says when he's standing in front of the Sanhedrin where there are Pharisees and Sadducees, he says, brothers, I am. Notice he uses the present tense. I am a Pharisee. And the Pharisees come to his defense. So they see him as still functioning like that. So I think that that should influence how we how we look at them. Yeah. So when we see the conversation play out in a chapter in the Bible with maybe the most commonly used verse, John 3, with Nicodemus, that very much so was the typical sort of interaction Mm -hmm. that Jesus had with Pharisees. Because I always saw Nicodemus as, oh, well, he's not that bad. He's a Pharisee, but he's kind of cool. But that was probably typical of conversations with Jesus and Pharisees. Man. All right. I did get control of myself and I picked four more. So we will (laughs) skip. But your family, so we'll have you back on to finish the list. Jesus did not tell parables to keep secrets. Correct. Parables are told to make things understood. They're told to convey to the common person theological ideas, what God wants from me. As one of my professors said before, if you want to know the will of God for your life, study the parables of Jesus. Part of the difference or the, the distance that we feel between ourselves and the parables is parables are completely encapsulated in the world of the people that they're living in. And the best way I can help modern readers to or listeners uh, to understand this is, you know, bring somebody from a foreign country where their version of football is soccer. Right. And, you know, put them in SEC country. Yeah. (laughs) And anybody that has grown up 
you know, as a fan of any team in the SEC, you don't have to explain infractions and what the teams are trying to do, right? I mean, you, people understand this intuitively because they've been around it and they've watched it. But someone who's from a different culture who comes in, they're still asking the question, you don't play with your feet. Why do you call it football? You know, exactly. so parables are fully a part of their cultural world. And so to understand them, we have to jump into that cultural world because they're not allegories. They're not short stories. They're often just kind of a pithy little analogy. Yeah. Yeah. And I don't know if this is worth like looking up right now. You probably know, but I've, I've read it wrong my whole life. I think it's in Mark four, Mark talks about Jesus speaking in a way that conceals. Yeah, you, it's it's this it's the thing and you find it in Matthew, Mark and Luke. And yeah. um it's after the the parable of the sower, the disciples ask Jesus this question and and this is one where I think you have to read all three of the the gospels here. In Luke they ask what is the meaning of this parable? So not parables in general but this parable. And Jesus's response is, to you it has been given to know the mysteries of God. And what's interesting is when we find the Dead Sea Scrolls, the phrase, the mysteries of God, is a term that that community used. And Paul uses this, by the way, in the same way, not as something that's concealed, but more as something that is referring to God's redemptive activity at the end of the age. So he's saying to his disciples, you know what God is doing redemptively at the end of the age, but to others, they don't. Therefore, I teach them in parables. And that's the idea behind yeah, that. Gotcha. All right. So three more, one having to do with David, Pontius Pilate, and then faith. And we'll start with David. And I, this this was one of the most fun to to learn when we were in Israel in November, that David was not the underdog. Yep. When it comes to his battle with Goliath, man, it's fascinating. Yeah, the simple, you know, the simple story here is Goliath, Goliath brought a knife to a gunfight. Slingshotters were the artillery of the ancient world. And it's clear from the story that Goliath expected a, a hand-on-hand combat with David, but David didn't give him that. He leaned into what he knew and what he was good at. And uh, really the best image of the the David and Goliath story is um, the scene from Raiders of the Lost Ark, where Indiana Jones is running through the marketplace <laughs> and he comes perfect. on the guy with a big sword and is doing all of his stuff. And he pulls out his gun and shoots him and walks on. <laughs> That's kind of David and Goliath there. So. so change all the Sunday school books. David didn't need faith in that moment. <laughs> <laughs> well, no, that's and, and that's actually part of the point that I make is that, you know, sometimes we treat the ordinary and the mundane moments of our lives as somehow disconnected from our faith and from those moments when when God is going to need us to be faithful. Had David not practiced throwing a rock a hundred thousand times in his job as a shepherd, then in that moment, where he was needed to help deliver Israel, he would have never been able to respond in that way. And I think sometimes we think that all of a sudden God's going to supernaturally come in and manipulate us like a marionette in those moments. But I often would tell students when I used to teach in the university, if you don't put the tools in the toolbox, God's not going to draw it out because he never does in the Bible. He never gives somebody something that they can't do. And, And I think that you know, had David not been faithful in honing his craft as a slingshotter, then 
he's going to have to figure out another way to beat Goliath. Yeah. Now, and, and I know we need to move on, but was it culturally known that shepherds were good at that sort of thing? Because I, I'm pretty sure it says something along the lines of the Israelites were terrified by the size of Goliath. Did they not know there would be someone in their midst as a shepherd who could take this guy out with a slingshot? Well, it's not just shepherding. And and I think that one of the things that the author of Samuel is doing here in this story, because the 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 figure that should be facing Goliath is Saul, but Saul's not. And it's part of this way where the author of Samuel is setting up this contrast between Saul and, and David. And what's exactly. even more pertinent here is at the end of the book of Judges, it states that the Benjaminites, who were, that's Saul's tribe, were the best slingshotters in all of Israel. So technically, David doesn't play by the rules, but he uses his cunning in order to deliver Israel and there's this sense where Saul should have been able to do the same thing, but he didn't. And it's it's this kind of contrast between the first and second king of yeah. Israel. Yeah. All right. We all think that Pilate's a pretty good dude. <laughs> Pilate was a butcher. Um, <laughs> when we when we look at Pilate within the ancient sources, the Jewish writer of the first century, Josephus, when he's trying to explain the poor Roman administration of the land of Israel. Um, spills more ink describing Pilate's mismanagement than just about any of the other Roman governors. You say, well, how does this fit with what we see in the Gospels? And before we answer that question, I think there's a more fundamental question. Why is it that Pilate is wanting to crucify anybody in connection with the Feast of Passover? And Barabbas was the one that was going to be. Right. And, and yeah. the two other criminals. Yep, that's and right, these are that's not right. just, they're not just criminals. They're not like pickpockets or, or larcenists or something like this. They are... Are they murderers? They're actually, the term that is used in Greek in the gospel is the same term that Josephus uses to describe those who are political insurrectionists. Okay. So they could start big rebellions. Correct. And that's what Barabbas has done. In effect, what Pilate is doing is The Feast of Passover is Jewish 4th of July, right? God delivered us, freedom, liberty, and so forth. And what Pilate's sitting here doing, say, you just celebrated Passover. We're in the midst of your celebration of Passover. Let me remind you who's in charge here. And so what he does is he's going to crucify these individuals who are symbols of Jewish hopes of redemption. The hope of the Romans being kicked out of the land of Israel. Yeah. It's kind of like where we have this, you know, we, we, we see in, you know, even when you look at like, you know, what the colonists did in the American Revolution of hanging King George in effigy. Well, these are kind of effigies, but they're just live human beings that are, that are, this is being done to, right? Once we understand that about Pilate, then it begins to help us to shape up what he's doing. And he does not see Jesus to be the threat that he sees Barabbas as. He also doesn't see Jesus as potentially in his movement as being retaliatory the way Barabbas is probably will. Yeah. But the chief priests see Jesus as more of a threat to them, to their power, to their financial security, and ultimately to the stability of the status quo because of Jesus's popularity with the crowds. And so what happens then is they make this deal, and what we see them doing is the same haggling that goes on in any Middle Eastern bazaar to this day. Once Pilate agrees, then Pilate and his soldiers become part of this mock coronation and Make no mistake, the sign that he puts on Jesus's cross is not his profession of faith. And it's not just saying, well, this is why he's being killed. 
It's also saying, here's what we do to your kings. Uh, It's making Jesus this effigy, if you will. Very reckless with human life. Well, yeah, that's kind of the way. (laughs) Never forget, I mean, you know, we, we today read Julius Caesar's Gaelic War, right? You know, when Julius Caesar goes into Gaul. But where does that that come from? He's writing these stories back to Rome to build his popularity with the Roman people. And he's outlining how he killed a million Gauls and enslaved another million. And the Romans are like, this is awesome. So, I mean, it's a different world than what we, and a different value structure than what we have. But the other thing that we know about Pilate is there is a psychological weakness to him as well. Pilate has this exaggerated devotion to the emperor Tiberius, so much so that in archaeological excavations at Caesarea, which is on the Mediterranean seacoast, which was the headquarters of the Roman administration of the land of Israel, they found uh, an inscription. They didn't find the building per se, but they found the inscription dedicating a small temple to Tiberius, who was the emperor, by Pontius Pilate. And everybody goes and they say, you see, here's an inscription of Pilate, and that's what's fascinating. And they miss what really the point of this inscription is. This is the only evidence that we have of a Roman citizen dedicating a temple to a living emperor. He also exemplifies this on the coins that he mints. So Pilate is has this exaggerated devotion to the emperor, and things he does consistently shows this. And if you notice in the Gospels, what do the chief priests say to him? If you don't kill this man, you're no friend of Caesar. And that's what yeah. he wanted more than anything. Wow. So you get, on the one hand, his tendencies to be a butcher. Ultimately, he will be removed from power because of his brutality. But on the other hand, you see this encapsulated in this psychological weakness that wants to ingratiate himself to power. All right. So we'll wrap it up here. Faith is not belief in the Bible. Let's, before you dive in here, are you talking about like saving faith? I'm talking about the term faith. Okay. In the Bible, faith is not belief. The, be- the easiest way to explain this is let's start with Greek. Of course, the Bible's written in Greek, Hebrew, and Aramaic. Let's start with the Greek language for a moment. In Greek, the term pistis is a secular term. Okay, pistis is what we translate as the word faith. You never find it within the corpus of Greek literature being used to talk about belief in the gods because the ancient people were religious people. They believed. So you never use the term faith. It was a secular term. It was never used in a religious context of believing in the gods. So in the secular terminology, what did it mean? It would better be translated in in what we would think of as trustworthiness, trust. So could, would, would it work then to say when my oldest daughter was old enough to stay home with the kids, we had faith in her as far yes. as everything would be fine? That's Yeah, that's, you trusted her. Yeah. You you trusted her. It wasn't you believe something about her. Right. You trusted her. And faithfulness would actually be a, a, a good translation of this. And so it's not believing something about something. It's not some kind of mental assent or some kind of psychological realization. In fact, you even find it in Greek being used in the relationship of describing a credit situation, like a credit with a bank, loaning yeah. in, in money and so forth. Now, Obviously, when we get to the Bible, it's being used in a religious context. Well, that comes to us through the Hebrew language and Judaism, because there, obviously, faith is 
used in a religious context. But even there, faith does not mean belief in something or belief about something. The first time we ever have the verb faith or to believe used is in Genesis 15, 6. Abraham believed God and it was reckoned to him for righteousness. And really the nature of that syntax there would better translate as Abraham was continually acting faithfully to God and God reckoned it him for righteousness. So again, what you find is even in the Judaism of the New Testament, the Hebrew of the Old Testament, that the language of to believe and faith would better be translated as faithfulness, trust, trustworthiness. And why I say all this is because sometimes we've created this dichotomy because of the Reformation of faith versus works. So we mean faith is like some kind of psychological mental ascent, and we have completely separated that in some respects from obedience and, and those kind of things. And we're constantly turning ourselves into these theological knots, trying to maintain faith, but also trying to grapple with this issue of obedience and works and things like that. And once we understand that the way that we're we're analyzing this language is because of how our world and our culture views it. And that wasn't the way that the ancients viewed it, but rather that in the world, both of the Greek-speaking world, but also the Hebrew-speaking world, that faith means faithfulness, trustworthiness, trust. There's an inherent then active component to that. Now, what what are the implications then of that on the theology of the book of Galatians, for instance, when it talks about being saved by faith? By faithfulness. Does, so that teeters into like a work-based salvation? Again, I, I think that when we frame it in that way, we're immediately framing it through lenses that the Bible itself is not looking at. Because what you also find Paul saying is, in Romans 2, he talks about the judgment at the end of the age being based upon works. This is where I think that we have to be careful in terms of reading Paul within Paul's world, as opposed to refracting our reading of Paul through the lens of the the Reformers and the Reformation. Yeah. So, is there a... I mean, this this will maybe sound like a crazy question, but when we talk about a born-again experience being initiated by a proclamation of faith, mm-hmm. how does that fit into this equation? Well, you know, I think the, the pattern that Paul gives is what he says in Romans, right? That if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord yeah. and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead— you will be saved, right? What we tend to do is we actually reverse the verbs in that statement. We call people to believe that Jesus is Lord and then confess that he was raised from the dead. But I think if we understand where Paul's coming from, first of all, Paul is growing up in a world where there's not a modern Western democracy. So ancient people understood what it meant to proclaim someone as king. And by acclaiming Jesus as king, as Lord, it means that he has the right to determine how I am going to live my life. He gets to make the rules, I get to follow them. It's that kind of, he's the Lord, I'm the servant kind of thing. And so, to to proclaim him as Lord is not just a verbal statement or a statement of psychological agreement, but because he is Lord, align myself under his kingship. He gets to make the rules. He gets to tell me how I live my life and so forth, and I get to go do that. Now, the belief part or the trust part here 
is because like something we said earlier, no one has the YouTube clips of Jesus walking out of the tomb. Right. And apart from, you know, Paul mentions that Jesus appeared to several hundred people after the resurrection, but none of us are those people. So we have to trust in, and this is really what Paul argues in 1 Corinthians 15 as it relates to the resurrection of the dead, right? That, that by raising Jesus from the dead, God gave his earnest money that those who are faithful will be resurrected as well at the end of the age. And that's yeah. where I think that, you know, the, the acclamation, the confession of Jesus's lordship is an agreement that he gets to now be in the driver's seat of my life. What I'm going to do probably for this episode is get a few older seacoaster. They'll hate that, that I'm calling them older, but <laughs> I want to, I want to hear what they have to say about that. Cause that is, that's, I mean, that changes things up. But definitely things that we've just always assumed for sure. That's cool, man. This has been awesome. We will end with if you could hang out for one day with either Josh Surratt or Greg Surratt. Who do you pick? (laughs) (laughs) You don't have to answer. Oh, I'll answer it. Oh, (laughs) (laughs) let's hear it. Let's hear it. It's not a fair question because Josh and I are our friends and always becoming friends and in many ways we're we're peers. Pastor Greg's my pastor. Gotcha. I mean, he has pastored me through good and bad times in my life and he's an individual. Whenever I'm around him, I just simply I mean, I love laughing with him and everything like that, but if I can I I, I just want to absorb his spirit. Yeah. While I, I appreciate Josh, and, and don't get me wrong, I was in Seacosta, and he and I, he knows this. I told him this the last time I was I was there at the Mount Pleasant campus. He was preaching, preached a great sermon mm-hmm. that I still go back to, and and whenever he and I talk, we usually it comes up on my end, and so I, I appreciate them both. But it's it's one that's you know your buddy, and the other that's kind of like your mentor and your father figure kind right. of thing. So right. <laughs> you right. know. All right, so say it. Yeah, you haven't said it. Um, <laughs> you know, I, I gotta go with Greg. I gotta go with Greg. I, you know. Thanks for listening. There's a link in the show notes to our podcast Facebook page where we talk about these episodes and share some behind the scenes information, including guests we're booking. Make sure to subscribe so you don't miss an episode.